What a great song to introduce the text that we'll be looking into this morning. Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, Before I get into the message, just a little bit of business to cover. Um, Number one, Paula and I are going to take a break. Um, We're so thankful Paula has finished up half of her chemotherapy. She has finished up all of her radiation. So they're giving us a break. And we're taking it. (laughs) So we're going to go to Cape Cod and uh, see the grandkids. I'll be missing next Sunday and the following Sunday. But let me tell you, you have uh, some great sermons to look forward to. Number one, Dan is going to be sharing with us, and we're going to be continuing right through 1 Timothy, so he'll be sharing with us next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, TJ will be uh, taking the sermon. So don't play hooky, all right? You want to hear these guys, and uh, listen, these guys are, are trained in God's Word, and I know that you're going to learn a lot from them. So really encourage you to, uh, to come and, and hear what they have to share. Let me also encourage you that uh, Sunday school begins on the 20th. And uh, we're going to be going in the adult classes through uh, some more of our doctrinal statement. And I'm going to miss the first day of Sunday school. I'll be teaching the fall quarter. But I'm going to be missing the first day of Sunday school. And uh, what, what I'm going to do is um, work on, boy, does anybody else sound, do I sound like I'm in a barrel? That's okay. You know what? I'm going to kick these speakers away from me. <laughs> Be gone. <laughs> there we go. Does, that didn't help, did it? We'll muddle through anyway, right? But at any rate, Sunday school. Dan is going to take the first Sunday school class of this series since I'll be going the 20th as well. Bingo. Got it, guys. Thanks. And uh, we, we really want to uh, come together and, and sit under the Word, sit under teaching. So I encourage you to come and be a part of that as well. Now to the Word of God. As we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the last part of this chapter verses 14 through the end of the chapter, we're going to see the Word of God encourage us about the church. What Paul does in this text is, first of all, share with us who we are. Then he also shares with us who we serve. So that's what we want to see this morning, who we are as God's church and who we serve. Now think about this. Why is church something that's important? I recently heard about a conversation that someone had with a person who had been very involved in church fellowship. He had served in leadership in several churches. He had taught Sunday school. He had gone to people who weren't attending church regularly and challenged them that they really needed to attend church regularly. And for a time, he sort of bounced from church to church to church, looking for the perfect church. But unfortunately, he found something. No such animal. There is not a perfect church out there. I've heard it said, if you find the perfect church, don't go to it, because then it won't be perfect anymore. (laughs) But here he was... 
in fellowship with this person who was having a conversation with him. And so the person finally asked him, so where are you going to church now? And his response, I'm not going anywhere and I don't want to talk about it. There are many people who have given up on church. Many view church as a place that crowds an already crowded schedule. They feel that church is kind of like one more obligation that they have to meet. And frankly, they're just not getting that much out of it anymore. So why do church? They've lost perspective. And that's what Paul, I think, gives us here in this text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, a perspective on the church. For almost three chapters, he has been sharing with us in his letter to Timothy the importance of doctrinal purity, the importance of having important leaders in the church who can lead it and direct it in the way that it should go. He has discussed our conduct within the church and how we should treat one another. All of these are important topics, but listen, you can get those same ideas in a social club. There's something different. There's something dynamic about church. And that's the spiritual component. And that's what we need to see this morning. What makes church different is how God views the church. And if I'm a child of God, I should view the church in the same way. Look at verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Now there's a question that we find as we look at that first statement in the 14th verse. Is Paul talking about what he has just written or what he's about to write? Or both. And I would submit to you that is both. He's talking about the structure of the church, the fact that we are to deal with false teachers, something that he's already discussed. But in this text, he's also talking about how we should treat one another, how we should interact with one another, and that's coming up in the next part of 1 Timothy. And here's the point that I think Paul is making in this text. If I have the right view of church... And the right view of who the church is for, that it is to worship Christ, then I'm going to conduct myself in the church appropriately. If I view the church as something that is mine, that I'm to shape and mold because it's my church and I hold on to it with tight hands, and I don't want anybody tweaking or messing what I've got hold of, then I'm going to become disillusioned critical, angry, and bitter. But if I view the church as God's church, and it's his to do with as he sees fit, then I'll have a whole different outlook and a vastly different approach. Paul is sharing with us how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church. Why? Because first he shares with us our personal identity as God's church. We're the people of God's household. We're the church of the living God. Look carefully at that 14th verse. After he says, I'm writing these instructions in 15 uh, so that 
If I'm delayed, you will know. Now, this is what I want us to key in on here on the 15th verse. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves where? In God's household. Do you view Oaklawn Bible Church as God's household? We should. This is God's household. And sometimes when we talk to little children and we say, hey, this is how you behave in God's house, we talk about the building, the structure. That's wrong. This is only a structure. When people come into it, it's the church. It's the people that are the church. If the structure were burnt down, God forbid, but if it were burnt down, Oakland Bible Church would still be Oakland Bible Church because it's the people. But think about how we as a people are described in our interrelationship with one another. We are God's household. Now, in the first century, household had a very specific idea behind it, a real meaning that we should consider this morning. The household was a place where you belonged as a family member, where you interacted with the other members of the household and had responsibilities to maintain the household, and you were part of something bigger than yourself. Our society kind of has us in an individualistic viewpoint where I'm the part that matters. I'm the one that matters. Everything has to take place for my satisfaction. And the moment that I'm not satisfied, then bye-bye. But what the Scripture teaches is we are part of God's household. And this household belongs to him. He is the authority over the household. But I have interaction with other members of the household, and I'm responsible for being connected to this household and maintaining that connection. Just as within your home, there are relationships, and as it's often said, you don't choose your family. Sometimes there are those family members that are difficult to deal with. Sometimes those family members that, that we look at and we say, Oi, you know, if I could just get them to, to change, everything would be okay. You know, we, we have to deal with them. We have to interact with them. We have to accept them. We have to love them. So within the church of God. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes God puts people that are difficult for us to deal with in our path to teach us how to love and to teach us how to accept. And that's something we do in a household to keep the household functioning, and that's something we do as a church body because this is God's household. There's a commitment that's expected of household members, isn't there? When we look in the first century, the household had many responsibilities that were given out to members of the household that they had to fulfill in order to keep the household operating smoothly. That was brought out a little bit earlier in the third chapter when Paul talked about elders and deacons leading their household in the way that they should, managing it well. Well, I would submit to you that the church has some of those same components, a level of commitment a level of belonging, that idea that 
we belong to him. So we need to be careful about the way we treat one another as members of the same household. We need to avoid gossip. I've seen families destroyed by gossip. One brother won't speak to another brother or sister in that household because of something that was said or a confidence that was broken and hurt reigns supreme in the home until that's resolved. And just as that can happen in a household, it can happen in this household, in the church of God, and we need to guard against that. I've seen criticism destroy households. Now listen, there is constructive criticism where you go and you share your ideas, and then there's destructive criticism, which once my ideas have been shared, if nobody buys into them, I'm going to whine and complain until finally somebody buys in. We need to be careful because that can be destructive to a household. Here, the Word of God is telling us we are God's household. And when I view the church in the way that God views the church, that will dramatically affect the way I conduct myself in the church. If I don't view the church as God does, then I will be a problem in this household. And I will hurt it. Look at what else we see in this 15th verse. We are God's household. And then look at this next statement, which is the church of the living God. We are the church of the living God. Think about what that means. Let that sort of resonate. Let that sink into your minds. You know what the scripture is telling us? That we are those that God has called out. That's what church means, those who are called out, called into a relationship with him, called to be a part of this community of believers. In the first century, church, ecclesia is the Greek word, would often be used in reference to an assembly that is called together in the community. They would come as a civic responsibility as those called together. This is what God is describing the church as. We are called into a relationship with God and called to assemble together to worship Him and to minister to one another. But notice it's not just called church. It's called the church of the living God. This is a high view of the church that's being discussed here. This isn't Pastor Rob's church. It isn't the elder board's church. It isn't somebody who sits off on the sidelines and says, church really ought to be run this way. It's God's church. God's church. The church of the living God. When we look in the Old Testament... We find living God as a description of God in many contexts, but some of the most profound contexts are those where the power of God is being discussed and the victory of God is being discussed. For instance, in the Old Testament, we will find that when Joshua was to go into the promised land, 
And he looked and he saw the daunting task of going against fortified cities. He was reminded that he goes in the name of the living God. When David was facing Goliath, and this giant is taunting him and intimidating the whole nation of Israel, what did David respond to him? You stand against the living God. Powerful statement. There's the story of Hezekiah. There was an Assyrian army that was camped right outside Jerusalem. Sennacherib, the general of this army, had over 185,000 men standing outside the city, hurling insults at the people of God. And the response of Hezekiah was, you stand against the living God. And that night, thousands of Assyrians were struck dead. And the rest fled in the face of the living God. Here's the point. This church belongs to the living God. He is victorious. The victory of each church rests in the power of God. He is the one who brings increase. He is the one who makes it grow. He is the one who holds it firm, the living God. We are the church of the living God. But then the text goes on, and it talks about something else. We are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Look at the last part of that 15th verse, and notice the Scripture says in this description, we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, what does that mean? One of my favorite speakers, he's home with the Lord now, but was Howard Hendricks. Just a wonderful, godly man, and one of those guys that could make you laugh, but in the middle of your laughter, you will, oh, I'm convicted. Great teacher of God's word. But he said this one time concerning pillars. Every church has pillars. Some of those pillars are the ones that hold up the church, and some of them are the caterpillars that just kind of crawl in and out. I love that saying, because it's true. (laughs) What does it mean here when it says that the church of the living God, the household of God, is, first of all, a pillar of the truth? Think about who Paul is writing this to, the church at Ephesus. Every day as you would go through the city of Ephesus, you would see these massive buildings with huge pillars that were outside the temples. And as you walked around Ephesus and saw those, they were there for generations. In fact, some of those pillars are still there to this day. Thousands of years there, standing strong. That's what we need to see and what God sees His church as, a pillar of the truth. That idea of consistency, of strength, of not being moved as the storms of doubt and as the storms of false teaching crash against that pillar of truth 
the church stands firm. That's the idea. The church is to strive to be a pillar of the truth. And that means that we look to God's word, we make God's word our final authority. And we make sure that this is what we stand on. Not taking the ideas of society and using it as something to transform the way we view God's scripture, but taking God's scripture and allowing it to transform the lives of those around us. That's being a pillar of the truth. And that's what God wants to see in you and me and in every church. And that's what we, as Oakland Bible Church, should strive toward. Standing on the truth of God's word and making that a foundation of our lives. But notice, the church is not only called this pillar, it is also called a foundation of the truth. Now, what the NIV translates as foundation is probably better translated as buttress or support when we look in the original language. Now, you construction guys will know what we're talking about when we talk about a buttress or a support, but the average person may not know what a buttress or a support is. So let me give you an illustration. When I worked for an apartment building, we went downstairs and we noticed that the foundation that was on concrete and cinder blocks was starting to crack and it was starting to bow. Brand new building erected over this shaky foundation. So you know what we had to do? We had to go in there and buttress it. We had to put supports in. We had to put sand against the wall so that it would stop buckling and so that it would stand. That's what we're to do when it comes to the truth. We are to come in behind the truth and stand behind it. We are to push back when the world pushes in to try and topple the truth. That's the idea. So we stand firm in it, and we make sure that we support it. That's who God sees us as as a church. And that's who we need to see ourselves as, as the church of the living God, the household of God, this pillar and this foundation of truth. Now, thus far, we've seen who we are, but that's not enough. We also have to see who we worship And we need to understand that our responsibility as a church body is to praise our great Savior. We need to think about in our praise who it is we worship. And that's what we conclude this text with as we come to verse 16. There are two truths that are shared. First of all, there's a truth about the mystery of God's truth. But then there's a hymn, a first century hymn that's recorded right here in this text to remind us of who we praise and who we worship. So let's first ponder the greatness of God's mystery. Again, the NIV says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. Now what in the world is Paul saying when he talks about the mystery of godliness is great? I like a couple of other translations that maybe will give us a little more insight into this. First of all, the complete Jewish Bible. It renders it this way. 
Great beyond all question is the formerly hidden truth underlying our faith. Now, that's what mystery means. When we think of mystery, we think of something that we look at that we have unknown but that we can ultimately discover. For instance, when you're in the school cafeteria when they used to have those and they had mystery meat, you wondered what it was. Not really sure if you wanted to find out, especially if you'd ingested it. What we're talking about here, though, is mystery in the sense that God has hidden it in ages past, but now it has been revealed. What it's talking about is the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize what a privilege it is to live in the time that we live? We look back on the cross. We look back on the resurrection. We look back on the ascension, and we look forward to the return of Christ. That's a mystery to many in ages past. Scripture speaks of prophets and angels longing to look into these things and understand what the Spirit of God moved them to write. Prior to the cross, as people looked at the suffering Messiah and as they looked at prophecies about the coming of the Lord, a lot of confusion, not much understanding. But when Christ came, the mystery was revealed. Paul speaks of this to the Colossians when he says, I have become its servant, it referring to the gospel, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that had been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And then he identifies the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. For the child of God and those who are part of the church of God We experience Christ in us. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, there is Christ in you, and you have the hope of glory. That's the mystery. You know, sometimes we look at church and we have such familiarity with it. We look at it and we just sort of say, yeah, you know what, it's no big deal. It's just church. The next time you feel like, hey, it's just church, go to this text and read what it has to say. It is the church of the living God. It is the household of God. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. It is a mystery that is now revealed. That's the wonder of our church. That's why we're so privileged to be able to share in it. But understand this, as we praise our great Savior, we also proclaim Christ's story through worship. As we come to that inset section there, in that 16th verse, what Paul did was record a first century hymn. And what he's doing is reaffirming the doctrine of Christ 
But he's doing it by taking a hymn that expresses who Christ is. So that in expressing it, we can stand firm as a pillar and a foundation of the truth. So let's look at this. By the way, this hymn is not an exhaustive treatment of every truth that there is about Jesus Christ. And let you in on a little secret. No hymn as an exhaustive treatment of every aspect of Jesus Christ. What the hymn writer who wrote this and ultimately the Holy Spirit who inspired it is doing is focusing on some key points about Jesus that this particular hymn will lift up. And so let's look at some of these points. First of all, we see that he appeared in the body. Now, a better way of translating this would be he revealed or was revealed in the flesh. Why would that be important in the first century that Paul would quote this hymn that talks about Jesus coming in the flesh? And here's why. In the first century, there were the beginnings of a terrible doctrine called Gnosticism that denied the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. And so, to set things right, what did Paul do? He met that heresy head-on by quoting this hymn that says, yes, Jesus did come in the flesh. John said this in his epistle. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So what's required to acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh? This hymn recognizes it. But what does that mean beyond the theology of it? It means that Christ came and became one of us. He added to his deity, the fact that he is God, humanity. And that's the precious truth of Christ's grace and Christ's love. Look at what else we find in this. It goes on to say he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, some of your older translations might even say he was justified by the Spirit. And here's what we need to understand. The word that is translated vindicated, and by the way, I think the NIV does a great job translating this vindicated, carries with it either the idea of being made or declared righteous or the idea of being shown to be righteous. We know for a fact that Jesus was righteous. So when he died on the cross and took our sin upon himself, his righteousness overcame our unrighteousness. And as a result, we became righteous while he remained righteous. That's the idea. Peter said this, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. When the Spirit made him alive, it was 
a stamp of approval, a demonstration that Christ overcame our sin. Had Christ not overcome our sin, he would have remained in the grave because the wages of sin is death. But overcoming them by the power of his righteousness, by the power of who he is, Christ was shown to be righteous. Look at what else we find. He was seen by angels. Now, when we look at this, we don't think maybe in terms of what is communicated often in the New Testament and the association of the witness of angels to the resurrected Christ. There is passage after passage in the New Testament that talks about Christ's power over the unrighteous angels, the demons, and the fact that when Christ died on the cross, he made a public spectacle of them. He showed himself victorious over those angels that rebelled. But he was not only witnessed by the wicked angels, he was witnessed by the righteous ones. The angels who looked and saw the grace of God and who wondered at how God could love Sinners like you and like me. Can't you imagine the awe that would go through the mind of an angel as the angel sees the God that they've worshipped for millennia hanging on a tree, spurned by the people who crucified him. They were witnesses to this. And then as we go into the Gospels, we also see that there were witnesses at the resurrection. When humans came to see the empty tomb, who greeted them? God's righteous angels, witnesses to the resurrection. Christ is identified as one who is resurrected, both by the vindication by the Spirit and being seen by angels, but then we move into the next part of the text. And that is, he was preached among nations and was believed on in the world. These two go together. Paul had taken on the ministry of sharing the story of Jesus with the nations around them. Another part of God's mystery, by the way that God would open the doors of salvation to Gentiles. And here, in the Word of God and in this hymn, what's being focused on is the heart of God to share the truth of salvation with not only the Jews but Gentiles alike. And not only was the message preached but it was believed on in the world. What a blessing that is. We have the chance to come into a relationship with God by placing our faith in the Son of God who died for us and rose again, victorious over our sin. That's the promise. That's the mystery that's being highlighted here. Final statement of the hymn. He was taken up in glory. Again, demonstrating the victory of Jesus Christ, the ascension. 
When we look in Acts chapter 1 and we see the record of the ascension, there's a promise with the fact that Christ was taken up into heaven. And that promise was that this same Jesus will return as you have seen him leave. Christ is coming again. Christ is going to establish his kingdom on earth. And this hymn reminds us of that blessed truth. So what we've seen this morning is who we are as God's church, who we worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this to you. The worship part of this cannot be minimized. One of the things that we're to do as a church body is to come together and worship. A record of a hymn is given right here, but many passages of Scripture talk about the importance of communicating spiritual truth through the music that we worship with. One passage of Scripture we find in Colossians, and it says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. We come together and we sing, not so we can have a joint karaoke experience by singing the words on the screens. We come together and we sing in praise to God and reaffirming the truth that we worship. Let me encourage you, never see worship as a preliminary. It's a time for us to learn and a time for us to express praise to our God whom we worship. This morning we've seen the church, hopefully in a biblical light. Does your view of the church match up with what God's Word shares in this text. When I view the church correctly, I will conduct myself in the way that I should within the body of Christ. So let's talk practical application. If I'm viewing the church as I should, will I say what I'm about to say to the other person when it can cause them hurt? Will I erode the confidence of another person by slandering them as I talk to one person about another person? Will I kind of look on a Sunday morning and say, eh, I don't much feel like going to church today, blowing it off? Now, there are reasons to miss church, and I understand that. I'm saying that before I'm getting ready to miss too. (laughs) But on those days where I feel good enough, and I have every reason to go and no reason not to, do I commit to that? And I'm not saying this to step on toes. That's for each person to evaluate for themselves. I'm not going to be looking at you, and if you miss a Sunday, go, boy, they don't have the right view of the church. You know, that's not my point. My point is for self-evaluation, looking to ourselves and asking ourselves, do I have a biblical view of the church? Do I view the church as God views the church? 
That should be our question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text.